0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Big welcome to everyone, especially anybody who's here for the first time. And uh, I don't know if you felt this, but it, you know maybe in particular at this time, when there is more, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot more fear of uncertainty and people, especially certain groups of people in particular, might feel more threatened by the, what's in motion in our society. So it's really, it's always important, but it's especially important when there are appropriate reasons for fear and uncertainty to remember that just because there might actually be danger probably always danger of one form or another, doesn't mean that there isn't something also beautiful that we can notice, something skillful, something wholesome, something light and easy. And it's not about being sentimental. It's not about being deluded. It's just seeing things as they are. So when we cultivate a practice of appreciating what's beautiful, it's a way of having a more truthful honest authentic direct immediate connection with reality it's not about playing favorites and i mentioned last week for those who weren't here i'll just say it quickly but the the fact is the way our mind is conditioned is and the and what we've often been reinforced for is seeing what's dangerous seeing what's off right having that kind of vigilance, looking for the monsters, the people out to get us, we tend to survive more. So we get reinforced. But we might live, we might continue to live or survive as a beast, but it doesn't mean we're happy and it certainly doesn't mean we're wise. It means we're afraid. And so if the purpose of life is to live a little longer, well then, you know, maybe being really afraid is useful strategy. But if the purpose of life is to be free or to be happy, well then maybe that approach of using fear and vigilance, that kind of vigilance based on fear, maybe that isn't the way. So this practice that is just central to the teachings of the Buddha, to be able to move through our lives, navigate our lives, and hold this... right. We have to train in holding this view or this frame this way because we have to balance what the habit of the mind is, which is to perceive, to be hypersensitive to danger, to what's bad... To the poop on the sidewalk. I mean, we never miss when there's dog poop on the sidewalk, right? But we miss all kinds of interesting leaves, even interesting cracks in the cement or other natural expressions of beauty that are there on the sidewalk. Little pebbles, you know? But we dismiss that, you know, unless it looks like a threatening insect. Or dog poop that we might step in, or some you know graffiti that shouldn't have been done, or whatever your reaction to it is, we tend, at least to some degree, not we tend to notice what's abrasive, what's difficult, what's threatening, much more than we notice the ordinary beauty and goodness. Like, how many clear moments have you had since you walked in the building? where you were touched by something good and beautiful. And if you say none, then is it because none of us were manifesting ordinary goodness or beauty for you to recognize? Or was it that it's just not the habit of your mind to appreciate somebody's smile, to appreciate that somebody looks comfortable, looks serene, looks happy, looks healthy, looks kind. I mean, there are many things. Right, We could look around the room. There are many things to appreciate in this room right now. Even things that are really simple, like the warmth, just the integrity of the physical space itself, that we have a roof, that the air is fresh. We have this amazing HVAC system that brings in fresh air, but captures the heat of the air that's getting pushed out, so the air coming in isn't Five degrees or whatever it is outside right now. You know, there's just so many. You know, and just the natural um, elements in the space, the fabric of the cushions, the you know the chairs that are relatively comfortable, the wood of the floor, the lighting—not too bright, not too dim. But how often are we letting it touch the heart? Oh, this is nice. Because what we're really connecting with is the thoughtfulness of the people behind it. Same thing, you know, when you go to the doctor. How often, I mean, usually we're just complaining about the weight, about the fact that the doctor, she didn't have that much time to spend with us, or, you know, whatever it might be, but how many times do we sense how many thoughtful moments it took for this system to be as organized as it is and how much more unworkable it would be if they hadn't been so thoughtful. Or all of the science, all the curiosity of the scientists that led to you know, these medications or these strategies, these kinds of medical interventions. All the thoughtfulness all the good intentions of all of those folks that then leads to us being able to receive this treatment or the food in the grocery store or the roads. I mean, I'm not saying that civilization is good, but it's nice to have roads and it's nice to have order, right? Stop signs, stop lights, people who mostly... The rules of the road, right? We don't text and drive, and you know, we take turns, and it mostly works some of the time, maybe even some of the time, a lot of the time. And all of that can be appreciated, even if you have a difficult relationship with another human being, whether it's a politician or a lover or somebody at work. There are things to appreciate about everybody. I remember a politician from a while back that was rubbing me the wrong way. I had lots of... I had good reasons to, you know, think this person was less than adequate for the job. But I really worked on seeing qualities, you know, and I, re- I connected with... Uh, and, you know, I had to use my imagination, but his love for his daughter's. His appreciation for his dog, for his buddies, right? So there are ways that we can, there are things we can bring to mind that doesn't dismiss all the facts, but it just includes some of the facts that we have a tendency not to bring to mind. Because otherwise what we're doing is we're justifying being angry, justifying feeling put upon. Basically, we're justifying, rationalizing, getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, and we wonder why life feels so heavy. And this, I think, it's especially important at these times, when partly because of the way information moves, partly maybe it's just you know more things are happening that aren't so skillful, but... In any case, whatever it might be, it seems like an especially good time to be training the mind, the heart, in being touched in very ordinary, natural ways by what's beautiful, what's good. Internally, what we see in our own heart and mind. Externally, what we see around us. Those of you with pets, you know, there are an almost infinite number of moments to appreciate something nice in the pet, just how it takes care of its life, you know, how it is so much what it is, that it's warmer today. Here's a beautiful poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. Some of you probably know her. She's one of our great poets around these days. Um, I think her parents were Palestinian. She had an interesting upbringing because of being a recent Im- or being part of an immigrant family, and uh, just writes beautiful. Just somehow is able to capture some of these teachings in a beautiful way. I, I recommend that you Google her, and there are a lot of her poems are online. So this one's called "So Much Happiness." Goes like this: It is difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands, like, a ticket, like ticket stubs or change. Right? So part of the reason we're addicted to pain, to sadness, to difficulty, is it reinforces the sense of I have something to do or I have meaning, like, oh, that's bad. We have something to rub up against or to resist when there's difficulty. And Then she goes on, she says, but happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. And that's, that's really the experience, when the heart is happy, content, peaceful, appreciative, It's more and more like open space and it can be a little disconcerting like what to do with, what do I do with all of this love, all of this sense of space, all this openness? Well, now you know, right? Because what we do with it is we appreciate it. So that's sort of, it's not like there's nothing to do. There is one thing to do when you're around a lot of love, a lot of beauty, a lot of goodness, a lot of ease, a lot of calm. You appreciate it. Oh, this is beautiful. This is good. This is sublime. May it continue. May it increase. May it never end. You know that it's not going to continue forever. It may not increase. But that wish, may this continue, may it increase, may it never end, it's just a, in a sense, it's a verbal expression of what the heart is Feeling that expansive immeasurable, boundless, light, open, no boundaries, less of a sense of separation. It's just, so if you don't like those words that I've been using like in the guided meditation, then just find your own words because initially having some language can help you do the practice which is keeping this point of view or this way of relating in mind. So the mind doesn't gravitate back to its habit, which is to be critical, to be discriminating, what's inside, what's outside, what's good, what's bad. That kind of categorizing our experience, evaluating, comparing, analyzing. The mind will fall back because that way of viewing, relating to life, has gotten a lot of reinforcement, and you know we've been reinforced in society for thinking being relating those ways so it takes some training so don't be it will feel a little awkward to use language like i did during the guided meditation but you might need that in order to keep remembering to move through your life with this attitude (coughs) instead of the usual let me continue reading her poem i'll just repeat that last couple lines but happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful tree house and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. So here's another really powerful teaching because we discover this directly in our practice the appreciation, the gratitude, the love that we discover in moments in our life, it may initially seem like it's arising in our hearts because of a particular situation. I'm around this person, or this happened to me, or I don't have any duties and responsibilities. And so we might feel some lightness, some love. But the more we really open to that experience with curiosity with no preconceived ideas, the more we begin to see that that lightness of the heart, that expansive, boundless quality of the heart that we call good or love, or the Pali word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. You might hear that word here at Common Ground or in just Buddhist context from time to time. That metta, that loving kindness, that basic goodness, it isn't conditioned. It may seem like it's happening because you really love me, but actually the experience of the heart opening is what we call unconditioned. It isn't born, it doesn't die, it can't be stained. It seems like it comes and goes, like sometimes in my life I really feel it, and other times it's like definitely not there anywhere. But that's just, it's a, it appears like it's gone. So one of the things you'll find in this practice is it takes a little faith, confidence to reignite it because we have to be willing to look, to open to it, even when we're pretty sure it's not here because the heart is really tight or mean or caught in an oh-poor-me attitude, Right? So, it's in this sort of fixed idea that life doesn't deserve this feeling of love, of openness. So, we have to, like this act of faith, we have to assume that the negativity is just a a very convincing veneer, very seductive, convincing veneer on our life, right? A thin layer. That makes it looks like, look like life is mean, convinces us to be despairing or reactive or negative, hateful. But we have we need that faith, that confidence to say that's yeah, that's there, but it's just this thin veneer. What else is here? And you know, there's all kinds of little tricks like caring about the negativity in the mind. Right, And all of a sudden, so we can be negative and then we can notice how heavy that state of mind is and realize, oh honey, your heart's really tight. I care about how tight the heart is right now. right? You see, already the heart, the mind is more expansive in because all that's happened is the mind is relating to the negativity in a tender way. Oh, like The line, one of the lines I really like, and you're going to have to find your own. Some of the ones I use may work for you, but they may not. But you'll find your own way of languaging it. But one of the lines I use is, honey, it's not easy being a human being. And that statement packs a lot of truth because it isn't easy being a human being. And you see that, you see how it evokes a kind of reflectiveness, a compassionate reflectiveness. You know what? You're right. It is isn't easy being a human being. Sometimes it seems really appropriate for the heart, the mind, to get tight, to get reactive, to get caught in some loop like, oh, poor me, or it isn't fair, or, or whatever. I need this to be happy. And, and really lock the mind locks in, the heart locks in. And we then feel the karma of that. We feel tight. And the whole world appears really narrow and dark and heavy and oppressive. And there's a lot of evidence to support the heart closing down in each of us in our own particular ways. There are real injustices, real pains, real suffering in life. But the fact remains that it isn't the only truth. Even when things are outwardly really bad like you're you've got terrible cancer and you may not survive and you're in a lot of pain and you're no way you can pay for your medical treatments and you've had to lose your job and your partner couldn't handle it and took off and nobody's taking care of your cat and i mean it could be one thing after another like that but you see there is this amazing alchemy and this is this movement of faith where the heart realizes in the midst of the heart feeling so squeezed and oppressed by the circumstances of life, the heart realizes, this is really hard. This really hurts. And I care about it. I care enough to be honest that it really hurts. I care enough to be honest about how difficult I care enough to let the heart break a little bit, to break open a little bit, to be tenderized by the difficult situation in my life. I care enough to put down any sort of judgment, like I should be doing this, I should be handling this better. You know, it's like I'm not going to put that on myself, that, you know, you should be, I should meditate. (laughs) That's like (laughs) a way of punishing ourselves, like, your fault because you're not meditating or however we might sort of push ourselves into an even tighter place by judging ourselves, thinking we're not doing, doing the suffering right. We're not suffering in the right way. We should suffer in a more skillful way. Instead of just appreciating, you know what, this is really hard to bear. It really flips it when you realize that in any moment, you know what, This is really hard to bear. Or with another person, you know what? It's probably not easy being you right now. And I care about that. I don't have the answer, but I know it isn't easy, and I care about that. I care enough to do whatever I can to connect, to be unafraid of the suffering that I'm experiencing or the suffering that you're experiencing. And in the same way of appreciating what's beautiful, It's like we have to be fearless to be close to suffering, but surprisingly we have to be fearless to be close to what's beautiful, to actually be attentive enough to notice what's good and beautiful. It's just so much easier to be dismissive than than to actually be touched by the ordinary goodness and beauty in life. It's hard to be sensitive, we often, in sort of Buddhist circles, we often say that, you know, the basic one-two punch of the practice is you do the trainings, like you meditate every day, and you, and the first punch is you get really sensitive, if you meditate every day and do some retreats and develop more, more sort of integrity about your actions in the world, more commitment to non-harming. You get, start getting really sensitive and then you realize, oh my God, it's even harder being a human being when you're sensitive. It was relatively easy being a human being when I was distracted and in denial and kind of you know, not very clear. But now that my heart, mind, and body is more sensitive, more awake, it's harder to see and feel what I see and feel. That's the first punch. And then the second is that exposure that sensitivity gives us demands a deepening of wisdom and love because there's no way to be a sensitive human being without the deepening of wisdom and love. You literally can't survive. People go crazy or they use drugs or alcohol or other unskillful ways to manage their sensitivity if they haven't found a way to develop wisdom and love. So this is like a saint, by definition, has found a way to get really, really sensitive, really open, vulnerable, connected to the way it actually is, all the imperfections, all the injustice, all the beauty, all the goodness. And in order to handle that kind of exposure, They've learned how to let go. They've learned how, in Buddhist terms we say, they've learned how to be empty. To not take the horrors and the beauty personally. It's the only way you can let it in. You can't be close to the horrors, the difficulties, and the beauty without seeing it in impersonal ways. That's how we can really be intimate. There's no way to be intimate and to take it personally. Because when we're taking things personally, we've created already. There's a, a separation. It's like when we're taking things personally, we want to manage the exposure to the beauty and the horror, the difficulties of life. But when we're empty, we can be totally exposed. When it's just life being life, just the joys and the sorrows being the joys and the sorrows then in a sense we can let it rip. We can just let life be what it is. Sunday is going to be what Sunday is. Monday will be what Monday will be. And I'm in. I'm in it. You know, I'm, my job is to show up, to be as sensitive, awake, real as I can be. And I just trust that there will be enough wisdom and love to not get so pushed around by whatever Monday's going to be, whatever the highs and lows, the pushes and pulls will be tomorrow. And so <clears throat> part of like the practice we did tonight, we're learning to be sensitive. what we're, you could see like there's a lot of directing the mind. So we're in a sense, we're probing in a very particular way, probing our life, our memories for what has a sense of beauty, a sense of goodness, a sense of wholesomeness. We're practicing exposing our heart and mind to those memories, those, you know, direct senses of that part, that place, that aspect of our life. And then how do we hold? How can we actually be intimate with the goodness? To really let it just move, to let it rip. Yeah, those people did love me. That person did relate to me that way. I did see that quality in my own heart. It was good. To really let it move, to let it be what it is, we can't personalize it. So this is the edge, like when you do the kind of reflection, the gratitude reflection we did tonight, or you could call it an appreciation, appreciative joy practice. There's this real balance where you're using your memory, you're using thought, you're using your own phrases, whatever works, but you're not getting caught. You're not sort of getting caught in a self-absorbed, self-centered story. You're just probing enough so that whatever is there to touch your heart can touch your heart, and then you're practicing letting it move. Then at some point, you won't need the reflection the memory so much because what will be the meditation at some point is the movement itself you're actually viscerally emotionally mentally feel this expansive quality of love you could call it love or you can call it whatever you want but this it's a movement it's not a thing it's an actual movement a flow now, it's not easy to let the flow just flow. The very deep habit of the mind will want to own it, to define it, to fix it in some way. So that's why we call it a practice. So we're first finding it. That's why we need the phrases and the memory and the structure of the meditation that we sort of went through tonight. You've got to use the form until you find something that's real and authentic and actually moving right now in your heart, mind, body, right? In this thing here we call ourselves. And then there's that switch where then that's the meditation object, the feeling of your heart. Now initially your heart might feel like twisted steel or it might feel completely numb or like a desert or molten lava, (laughs) you know? Depending on your life and what's left over from your life, your heart's going to feel the way that it feels. But you just keep at it. And the way we keep at it is we keep bringing to mind, using memory, using directed thought, we just keep bringing to mind what is worthy of appreciation, what's worthy of gratitude, what's beautiful, what's wholesome, around us, in us, whatever works. It's a creative endeavor. And you've got to stick to it with confidence that the more you stick with it, the more you're actually going to feel something about your heart that you normally are unaware of. It's alive. It's moving. It's good. I trust it. I surrender. I open to it. I'm holding it, keeping it in mind. I'm not going to forget it. right? And then when it f- gets faint again, then you've got to pull out the phrases, the memories. You've got to direct your attention. So there's a little bit of an ebb and flow Until there's a lot of confidence, and at times it will be relatively easy for you to access. It's like a a lighthouse, like literally, like light, in the sense that it. You know how light just. You know there. If there aren't obstructions, light just goes out. Nothing stops it. You know it just, and it goes out very quickly. Anybody know the speed of light? Right. Thank you, Holly. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> in other words, fast, right? <laughs> and it's effortless. you think those protons or waves or whatever they are, do you think they've got to work at that expansion? It's in this, the nature of light to expand out. Same with love. Same with that goodness. But we have to uncover it, and then we have to trust it. In a sense, it's not about doing the love. It's about resting in it or trusting it and appreciating it. That's the activity. So when it's clear for you, drop the phrases, drop the memory. You don't need that. Because the love isn't those memories, isn't about that particular event. Those directing your attention in that way, bringing those memories to mind, was a way to find something that was already here but obscured, hidden, because of all of... Our unresolved pain, basically, unfinished business in our heart, emotional business in our heart, so it 's not so easy to notice or recognize. But we do the work, a little crack opens up, may feel painful, right? Your heart. I mean, some people describe sometimes like they're having a heart attack, heart attack. There's a retreat that Jack Cornfield talks about where he was teaching, <clears throat> and somebody came to him in one of the practice meetings. This guy was a doctor, actually. A medical doctor, and he was saying that he thought he was having symptoms of a heart attack. And so Jack Cornfield asked him to explain, you know, to describe the sensations. And he said, No, your heart's just beginning to open up. You know, it's not a heart attack. But it can feel intense. But we know, right, that bringing to mind things to appreciate, there's nothing medically dangerous in doing that. (laughs) It's like we don't have to worry that you know we're tra- taking some strange hallucinogenic drug or you know doing something that might actually have you know caused some bad thing to happen to the body or to the mind we can rest assured that bringing to mind what's worthy of appreciation is a safe activity and the more you do it in the formal sits then you can just naturally start doing it and you'll find yourself just naturally appreciating little things. Oh, how sweet. Oh, how good. Well, that's nice. And it's not like some sentimental Minnesota nice. I mean, it's just a simple, natural appreciation of what's actually good and beautiful. I just realized I haven't... Did I finish the poem? I don't think so. you are happy either way even if the even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy everything has a life of its own this is new territory in the poem everything has a life of its own it too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept the soiled linens and scratched records Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you, into everything you touch. You are not responsible. So she's talking about this impersonal nature of love. She goes on, you take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. Isn't that beautiful? So <clears throat> Naomi Shihab Nye, So Much Happiness, it's called. So just before I open it up for discussion, just three things to keep in mind as you work on what the Buddha calls the mind or heart's deliverance of gladness, of joy. Right, This movement, this confident movement that we're learning to trust. So three things to kind of keep in mind in this work that It's all about connecting. This is true for the whole path, whether you're just doing a basic mindfulness practice and you're connecting with the reality of the breath coming in or connecting with the reality of the, the experience of embodiment or the reality of hearing. It's all about opening. Now, the only difference with this practice I'm talking about tonight is we're specifically training the mind to open to this Inherent goodness, this expansive goodness of the heart, right? So we have to find it and then we open to it. So the the specific reflections I've been talking about are just a way to uncover that boundless, expansive, ordinary goodness of the heart, what we could call love, whether it has the flavor of compassion or joy, equanimity, or just basic friendliness, inclusivity. So it's all about connecting with something real, which means it's not sentimental, it's not made up. So we're connecting what we're feeling is something that's here and now, directly experienceable here and now. So in that way, it doesn't matter what anybody else tells us. Oh, you're doing it wrong. but that's not it, right? Because, no, no. That's something that I directly, immediately feel I'm connected with. It's happening. It's moving here. I trust it, no matter what other people say. And the Buddha makes a big point of this connection because it helps us become independent in the practice where we're not dependent on a teaching or a teacher because we're starting to directly see the results in our own practice. And in a way, our own practice the reality of what we're experiencing in our own practice becomes more and more and more. teacher. It doesn't mean we stop reading or listening to talks or having conversation with our friends who are practicing. It just means that we're less dependent on that and more dependent on learning, taking instructions, in a sense, from our own practice. So that's the first point. The practices, practices of love depend on connecting or opening to what's real. And the second is this circulation, this movement. And usually in this tradition, we call it dana, like that bowl out in the hall that Kendrick painted with lotuses or donation bowl. We call it the dana bowl, right? Because we're, we're, it's pointing to this circulation of giving and receiving here at the center. So, But this circulation, this movement, this is really at the heart. So it's about connecting. And what are we Connecting. We're, not, we're never connecting with a thing. It's always a movement. It's always a circulation. That's how we know we're connecting with something real because everything that's actually real is a movement. It's not a noun. It's not a fixed thing. When it seems like a fixed thing, that's because it's a concept. It's an idea. Ideas have the appearance of being fixed. Pierre, as a concept, Seems fixed. Like I know Pierre, he's been around for a while, great guy. Yeah, I got these things that sort of fix him in time and space. But that's not Pierre, that's my concept of Pierre. Pierre is a movement, it's a happening. <laughs> he's a happening guy. <laughs> right? And that's the thing about everything. When we're, we really tune in, we see the movement. You can see this in even in your most stagnant relationships. Hopefully it's not your marriage, but maybe you have some stagnant relationships in your life, whatever it might be. It can even be not even with another being, like with brushing your teeth. You can have a stagnant relationship with brushing your teeth, and it sort of exists as a thing. Every day I've got to brush my teeth. Damn it. <laughs> and we have this idea, this sort of fixed idea, but actually, the activity of brushing your teeth is a flow. It can be, at least, a flow. It can be beautiful. It can be liberating. And it's only the ideas, the fixed ideas, which can make it an oppressive thing. I've got to brush my teeth. And i am got to brush them again tomorrow. <laughs> and it can feel like a... Because it's a thing, then it can have the appearance of weight in our life. Like, oh... And, you know, it just goes on, because it's not just brushing our teeth, it's sweeping and cleaning and, you know, going to work and having to be nice, and everything can feel oppressive, you know, and now we've got to start waking up to injustice and paying attention to our cultural conditioning. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's just, this is how we relate to all of life, like everything's a burden, and then we get really susceptible to addictive distractions, whatever it might be, because we just think because life feels like a bunch of things, it feels oppressive. But when we recognize more and more that life is a movement, it's, a, it's really it's enlivening everything. Brushing teeth, having an interaction with someone. So this is so. The first piece is about connecting with what's real. And in that connecting, we see it's a movement. It's expansive. And then the last, and you know, all three of these are related, is the joy. It's pleasant. When something's a movement, it's pleasant. Now, a lot of you know this because one of the things that is a common meditation object is physical pain, right? The ache in the back, the pain in the knee, the restlessness, the sleepiness, these are often unpleasant experiences. When it's a fixed thing, it feels unpleasant. I mean really sometimes very unpleasant. Even simple things like a little tickle can be really oppressively unpleasant. But when we start to connect, feel the movement, then even painful things when it's when pain is moving, it's definitely workable and it's sort of strangely Pleasant when pain moves. Do you know what I mean? Have you seen that happen with things that, like even emotional pain, like think about times when you've had, you know, sometimes grief feels really locked in, like your heart feels really tight. But the, isn't there times, maybe you're even times when you're crying, but not always, but sometimes the grief moves and it feels good that it's moving. You might be sobbing, but it feels good that it's moving. Do you know that feeling? It's the same with physical pain, any kind of pain. When you're tuned into the movement, it's pleasant. There's a rightness in that. So now I'll open it up. It'd be nice to hear from people your own experiences of um, connecting and appreciating with your own experience, your own life, or any questions you have about what I've said tonight. And remember, you've got to point the mic right at your mouth like this and about an inch away, and then we'll be able to hear you. And remember, on Sunday nights, we do record the talks and put it up in the Internet, so uh, you can keep that in mind when you share. Anybody like to begin? What have you been learning or what questions come to mind? What would you like to share about what I've said tonight?
2: Hi, uh, my name is Marissa, um, and I. It, it strikes me the... Um, And it's been for the last, I don't know, couple of months, the kind of black and white thinking. It's the either or. um, uh, And I was actually reading um, an article today um, about some of the ways um, outside of like direct action that um, some of the main thoughts behind uh, the way that Martin Luther King Jr. um, organized and, and brought about change. And one of the things that he talked about was um is was finding much what you said was finding that that piece um in a person that maybe have completely opposite ideas to you um and that one place where you can kind of identify with them um and in an effort to kind of realize that um that we are all human um and that we're all trying to fumble through this human thing um and I and I guess it was it was really moving to me um, to hear then you talk tonight about, you know, in my mind, it became the possibility that that one piece of I- identification um, could make major change, you know, um, in the way uh, the world works. And so um, so thank you. I feel uh, I feel a, a level of hope um, that I've been working on kind of consciously <laughs> um but I also think that um, remembering to appreciate um, even when stuff does not look great um, is really the only way I'm going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for yeah, that reminder. Thanks for
1: sharing, Marissa. Uh, two people behind you.
3: I was struck by the same um, thought. Uh, several years ago, I had a neighbor who I... He hadn't been all that nice, and so I really couldn't stand him. And it made it unpleasant to be out in the yard. I would avoid it sometimes because I'd have to interact with them. And a friend of mine from Common Ground suggested that I try to find one nice thing about him to, to go along with all the other things. And I was reluctant to do so, but I did. And it was remarkably effective to make my life better. Uh, he didn't change all that much for several years, but he changed too, and I think it was because I did. And now we're very civil with each other, and I wouldn't say he's a friend, but it. But I was able to look at, he had lots of good qualities that were just being overwhelmed by the the negative things that I, the, that I did know about him. So my life changed a lot with that, and it's, then I've been able to apply that to other areas.
1: Yeah, and the important thing about what Brad said is that we first and foremost benefit. So it's, we shouldn't think that we're doing it for the other person. We should really see that we're doing it for ourselves, and in taking care of ourselves in this important way, we take care of others. There's a beautiful simile from the Buddha's discourses about Acrobat, about a, like a grandfather and granddaughter that did this sort of balancing act where she, he had a pole and she would climb and get on top of the pole. And they they were having this discussion where he was saying that I'll look after you, and you look after me, and in that way we'll be able to perform well. And this little granddaughter says to the grandpa, no, no, that's not right. You look after you, I'll look after me, and in that way we'll take care of our act. And it's, I mean, it, it is true that we care about others, but the thing is, when we really take care of ourselves, we are taking care of others, and that's kind of what I heard in what you said, Brad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who'd like to go next?
0: I'm Michelle, and I just wanted to share um, how much what you said meant to me sort of at a personal level because I have been struggling with just these deep feelings of unworthiness. And they come from um, a lot of childhood trauma. And so through meditating and other things, I've been able to actually feel that pain, like what you're talking about, sometimes it feels really, um, really bad. And because I've been able to do that, there was sort of some joy connected to that grief. Um, and it occurred to me through talking with my husband, actually, right before I came here that I have a lot of love in my heart. I really want good things for the world and for others. Um, I want to do no harm and that I get to include myself in that. And I mean, we all know that at a certain level, but you talk about that you have to love yourself before you can love others. And this is a way that I'm working through that in a very practical way. And it seems like a mystery, like how do I love myself? Um, And just everything you said tonight, I could just feel my heart opening and that I get to be included too in the happiness that I want for others and the love that I want for others and the doing no harm. So to get that at an emotional level has been very powerful.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And the the thing is that we hear just in your voice is that experience of your heart opening, that's real. And it can be trusted, right? And nobody can take that away from us, that, that experience of seeing or feeling that. And the mind recognizing that that opening, that expansive quality, is good in the sense of being trustworthy. Yeah, thanks so much. Femi had a sharing. Yeah, here you go.
4: Thank you for the teaching, Mark. So this is right on time for me. I have been uh, using some of the heart practices lately, my personal practice, because uh, I'm recognizing how how tough life can be right now with different challenges and how my heart very much needs this and you know at home it's it's good I recognize this is, is it's a need I've been putting energy into the practice but uh, it hasn't it, it at times has been very dry I haven't been able to uh, on it on haven't been able to feel in my body the the resonance with the practices that I feel when sitting in sangha, and right? community, and it, it, it occurred to me sometime in the said I was like, oh, well, the, the secret is I'll just have to have everybody come meditate at my house in the morning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's your address? <laughs> <laughs> you know my address.
4: <laughs> um. So the question is, what what guidance can you offer on moving from just the intellectual repetition of the phrases the meta phrases and meta like phrases to 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 moving into like a really embodied sense of of the practices so that it can be done in a way yeah so i can take this 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 collective energy and and, and bring it into my personal practice
1: yeah well there's there's kind of two pieces to that one is we need to feel safe enough so that Because there's always something there, generally, that we don't want to see, but not seeing of it keeps the mind from having an authentic experience with life itself, let's say. Or what in Buddhism we call Dharma or Dhamma, the way it is. So in a funny way, the neurotic mind has defended itself, has cut itself off from life, from Dhamma, the way it is. And we're trying to find our way back. The mind is trying to find its way back, but it's well defended. And so there's two two parts to that. One is feeling safe enough to be interested because we're going to have to see something we're not seeing, and often we're seeing something that the mind or the heart doesn't want to see, doesn't want to feel. I mean, you were kind of pointing at it, Michelle, in your sharing. And... uh, and sometimes it's not necessarily deep pain. It's just a real habit of the mind to not look there. It's looking here. But that, and so it's, it has a habit of turning away. And we have to recognize that. So it's a lot of it, and this is especially, I don't know if this fits for you, Femi, but for people who have a lot of confidence, you know, just in terms of their personality, then it's... Uh, recognizing that I don't know, like that I can't figure it out. That humility can actually allow the mind to see what it's not seeing. It's always close at hand. It's never like a trick. The mind never tricks itself. It's just the habit energies that trick the mind. So if we can find some safety, some amount of safety, and then have some humility about what, there's a, way back where there's a way for awareness to come back home to the way it is. What's the mind, what's the heart not feeling or seeing? What else is here asking for attention, asking to be felt or seen? What isn't being acknowledged? What is the habit of the mind to not see, to not feel? So that kind of humility and curiosity can make it more real. And the thing is, we do get some power being together. We have a lot more integrity when we're together. And the habit energies have more power when we're alone. You know, because there's safety, we feel more confident in the practice because, my God, look at there are other people who are interested in it. So there must be something to it. So we kind of give ourselves to it. But when we're at home, it's like we're more dependent on whatever the force of habit is. So you can strengthen that by having, you know, that's why people have altars or they have their Dharma books or the picture of their Dharma friends or whatever it is, they, to kind of remind them of this deep and wide river of human beings who have done this before us. It's not, we're not alone in doing this. And I think it's okay to think that the groove that other women and men have cut by doing their own practice that we're sort of in the wake or we can tap in to their goodness, their wisdom. It's easier for us, right? And we're making it easier for those who follow by navigating our own lives and sticking with it and starting over. Thanks, Femi, for sharing with us. And let's just take a few seconds now, let go of the words. Just enough time to appreciate being together. However simple it might be to appreciate the goodness of being here. May all these Streams of goodness that are moving in our heart and mind, these streams of wisdom and love and integrity, may all this goodness continue and increase and never end, and may we do our practice for the benefit of all beings. May all the goodness in our lives be happily offered to support the awakening, the liberation, the happiness of all beings.